linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And as you can tell by my nasal-sounding voice, I'm just coming back from a somewhat extended bout with uh, some kind of winter bug that laid me low shortly after my last podcast. But I'm definitely on the mend now, and uh, we'll be back in full form soon. Actually, uh, I had planned on getting this program out to you last week, but uh, that just wasn't possible. So it turns out that my announcement a few weeks ago about sometimes sliding between a weekly and a bi-weekly release format uh, sort of eased my mind, since I knew you wouldn't wonder what happened. But in uh, last week's podcast by the Dope Fiend, I heard him say that uh, while he understood my reasons for slacking off a bit, that he still wasn't thrilled with uh, my doing a show only every other week, uh, or as he called it, every fortnight. <laughs> you know, here in the States, uh, the word fortnight is seldom used. Uh, in fact, uh, until I heard the Dope Fiend say it, I wasn't sure if a fortnight was 14 days or 20 days. <laughs> and uh, don't ask me where I got that strange idea. Uh, anyway, my pledge is to go not more than a fortnight between podcasts. You Brits have a real classy way of saying things, don't you? Fortnite. A lot better than 14 days. But uh, even though it's been uh, two weeks since my last podcast, our uh, friend and fellow saloner Christopher S. hasn't uh, forgotten about us, and uh, he sent in a generous donation to help offset some of the expenses associated with getting these podcasts out to you. So, Christopher, on behalf of all of our fellow saloners, uh, hey, thank you very much. Now, I want to get right into today's program because it may run a little longer than the hour or so that I'd like to see, but for some of our fellow saloners, and uh, hopefully for you too, a few of the ideas in this show uh, have the potential of cracking your cosmic egg. You know, the one you've been forced into by your family, school, church, friends, and uh, your culture in general. To get through today's podcast is uh, definitely going to require some uh, real psychedelic thinking on your part. The talk I'm about to play uh, comes from the fourth Amazonian Shamanism Conference that was held in Iquitos, Peru last July. And if you're a listener to KMO's Sea Realm podcast, uh, you already know a lot about these annual conferences. Uh, The next one actually is already scheduled for the 11th through the 18th of July, 2009, in case uh, you can get down there. And I'm sure there'll be a lot more announcements of that as the time gets closer. Uh, last year, actually, there were over 25 speakers at the conference, and uh, my guess is that uh, next year will also include uh, as stellar a lineup as this year's conference did. Thanks to uh, fellow saloner Erock X1, uh, who, by the way, is the proprietor of the Guyan Botanicals site that you uh, can reach through a link at the top of the psychedelicsalon.org website. Uh, and also, uh, thanks to Iraq X1, uh, you can download around 20 of this year's uh, Shamanism Conference presentations uh, from his blog at Iraq, uh, well, it's E-R-O-C-X1, the number one, uh, erocx1.blogspot.com. Uh, and that's where I got the talk we we're about to listen to. It's, uh, it's by a friend of mine who you just heard from a few weeks ago, Robert Forte. In fact, uh, one of the reasons that out of all the talks from that conference, it's Bob's talk that I want to play right now, is because his uh, last appearance here in the salon produced uh, what for us was a little controversy. 
Uh, in fact, uh, we probably lost a few slaughters because they thought the show was getting political or something. Well, I'll have more to say about that later, but uh, for now, I'm just asking you to trust me when I say that you have nothing to fear about these podcasts turning into a political discourse or a conspiracy theory rant. That simply isn't going to happen, so uh, don't let those uh, little demons of distraction keep you from hearing the messages you're about to hear. Now, in a few minutes, uh, once Bob gets into his talk a bit, you may begin to wonder if I actually listened to it uh, all the way through before podcasting it. And the answer is uh, yes. Uh, As you listen, uh, you may think that some of the things Robert has to say are no longer applicable uh, now that Obama is the president-elect, and uh, that is exactly why I'm playing this talk now. I hate to continue to be the one who reigns on your parade, but the election of one man, admittedly a a potentially great man, still isn't going to change things on a dime, or even in a decade for that matter. The police state that's been set up by the Bush crime family isn't going to be easily dismantled. There, uh, There is simply too much money involved for those who want to maintain the status quo. And don't forget, Obama supported the FISA internal police law, And uh, the first two people he appointed are two of the top drug warriors in the land. Now, our psychedelic community isn't going to uh, see any relief for at least another generation or two. Even if ending the drug war was Obama's top priority, which it isn't, uh, he couldn't bring an end to it in a single term or even in eight years. You know, our community most likely will be one of the very last to receive our equal rights, our right to control our own minds in any way we please, as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. Okay, uh, that's already too much heavy stuff, I think. But uh, enough of me for now. Let's listen to what Robert has to say, and then I'll be back with my two cents on these things uh, after we hear Robert. So I thought I would um, divide this conversation with you into kind of three parts. In the first part, tell you a little bit about my personal uh, history and how I came to be here. And the second part, I would like to discuss um, what I'm calling uh, cultural therapy, cultural healing. We've spent a lot of time here talking about uh, our own personal healing and the use of these plants and drugs to um, heal ourselves. But it's, I think, very important to look at how psychedelic drugs or entheogens, as we now call them, are um, part of a movement that really began in the began slowly in say the 1940s with Albert Hofmann discovering LSD and really picked up speed during the 1960s through a, a close associate and friend of mine, Dr. Timothy Leary, who's had a, a kind of checkered reputation. And maybe some of you know I also did a book about Timothy Leary, a feshrit for him, which was is an attempt to kind of put his life and his ministry in some sort of context. I mean, Tim made a great many errors, but um, uh, and, and those errors were so extraordinary. He was such a, a charismatic and outrageous man that the the kind of genius that was behind what he was trying to do, I think, has been has been lost. And so the. Um, the third part of this presentation, I would like to try to engage in a conversation because I, I think that this that this attempted social therapy of the psychedelic movement has um, has actually failed. It was it was a it was an attempt it was an, it was an attempt to hold off uh, what 
Tim and a great many other um, brilliant scholars and social scientists saw in the 1950s as a rise of fascism in the United States. That, that was, it was seen that if after World War II, the same conditions that existed in Nazi Germany in the psychology of the population were beginning to arise in the United States. And, and um, Tim, among many others, Aldous Huxley, Frank Barron, another teacher of mine, you know, were looking for ways to avert this, this fascist takeover. And I think it should be clear now that, unfortunately, we failed. And the United States is now essentially a, a conquered nation, an occupied nation, with just a, a pretense of democracy, if that. And so I'd like the third part of this conversation to be a, a discussion about how we feel about that. I know there are many people from the United States here, but the political crisis in the United States affects everybody in the world. And so maybe we can put aside our personal uh, issues and our personal healing and look at this a little more globally. Okay, so, so for me, this began uh, three interesting events that happened in sort of a cluster when I was when I was very young. It was about 1967 or 8 when I was 11 or 12 years old. The first of these was I was um, I, I was on my way to school and I had to give my, my um, it was a show and tell day, bring something current events in. And I, I picked up uh, Look Magazine and I brought it into school and on the cover of Look Magazine was uh, LSD. And I brought this into my fifth grade class, and I and I asked my my teacher, what was this? What did LSD stand for? And she looked at me kind of slyly and gave a little smile, and she said, "Let's save democracy." <laughs> of course, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what LSD was. It went right over my little eleven-year-old head. But it, it turns out to be quite a prescient remark. And it's, it's curious to me that in all my years of being deeply involved in this subject with close relationships with Albert Hoffman and Gordon Wasson and Stan Groff and Timothy Leary and many other people, no one has ever heard that before, that funny little acronym of LSD. And, and we'll see when we get to this, it's really dead on. So the second incident was uh, really my introduction to sacred plants. And I was, um, I had this little stream near my house where I grew up in this affluent area of, uh, just outside of New York City. And it was my, it was my, um, my paradise. This was my, my Eden. I would go down there and it was just a really special place for me to be. And one day I went down there and the most remarkable thing happened. I was, I was sitting by the, by the bank of the stream and there was a, there was a footprint in the sand that was from, I don't even remember if it was a deer or a bear, but something really quite, that just captured me. And I, I, I sat down next to it, and then I had my first real mystical experience. It was a spontaneous mystical experience, when the flowing stream became like, I felt like it was my blood. And the wind rustled through the trees, and I felt like this was my breath. And, it, and, the, and I felt the ground, and it was my body. And it was so extraordinary and excited me that I ran home to tell my mother, and I was trying to explain this thing to her. Mom, I was, you know, I turned into the ground, the stream, it was my blood. And my mother looked at me, and she was kind of alarmed, and she said, 
Bobby, if I find out that you've been smoking that marijuana, you're in big trouble. And I thought, marijuana will do this? <laughs> so the third thing that happened, just a couple of weeks later, something had happened to the stream. Upstream, a couple of miles, they had begun to transform our bucolic community into a corporate uh, headquarters for many big corporations and construction began to happen. There were just hundreds of acres of apple orchards and, and woods. And, and uh, Mercedes-Benz bought a big chunk of it and started to build their, their Western Hemisphere headquarters. They did something that, that changed the stream. I still don't know what it was. They polluted it somehow. And the stream, which had been full of little little trouts and frogs and snakes, and I went down there one day, and they were they were washed up on the shore. They were just it like an instantly killed the stream. And I went home, and I and I complained to my mother and my father, and I said, you know, this is this, some terrible thing has happened. Something is killing the stream. And they explained to me that that. Um, they knew, they knew that this might happen. We found that it was the construction upstream. I said, we have to stop this construction. And they said, well, no, the town had already voted on this and that this, was, this construction was going to be a good thing. And I said, good thing? And they explained to me that it was going to make the taxes lower in our town. And I thought, taxes? What are taxes? They explained to me what taxes were and how the government worked, and I thought, Something, there's, there's a grave evil that is starting to happen here. Somehow, paying taxes, lower taxes, was more important than the life of this stream. And it, it not only did that concern me, but what concerned me even most was the fact that well, I was one of the only ones that cared about this. A few of my friends and I were the only ones that cared about this. Everyone else was kind of happy that the corporations were coming and that they'd be making more money, less fish, more money. I thought, something is wrong here. So it kind of sent me away from my parents and it began to be on this kind of quest to try to understand what I'm, what I'm now calling and, and writing a book about called The Psychology of Non-Perception. How is it that people fail to see that when the stream dies, we die, that we are that stream? And so I began to study and I, I first, I thought I would become a politician. And I, and I thought, you know, you just have to organize the right people and change the way people vote. And, you know, maybe we could get Mercedes-Benz out of the town if we voted them out. And, and I realized after a little while that wasn't going to work. And I began to see this as a psychological problem. I began to study that quite thoroughly. And then soon I realized that the crisis was so immense and so grave that I began, began it occurred to me as a, a spiritual crisis, a grave, a, a big cosmic problem that we had here on this planet. And so that's what, that's what began to turn me into the study of religion. I've been very, very fortunate um, because I've been able to study with some very, very extraordinary people, as I said, Stanislav Grof, I went to graduate school where I worked with Mir um, Chikulayade, if you're familiar with shamanism, one of the great scholars, one of the first Westerners to, to um, take seriously the claims of, the, of the, uh, what he called, before Terence McKenna came up with his phrase, the archaic revival, Mir Chikulayade talked about the archaic therapeutics and was the archaic consciousness, the archaic worldview, and realizing that if we were to have any chance 
of surviving as a, as a planet, as a species, we were going to have to understand and, um, and, and recover this sort of archaic mentality and, and so forth. And so he devoted a great deal of time to that, and I was, I was very lucky to be one of his very last students. I was, um, I was put off by psychedelic drugs. Um, of course, they were used a lot when I was in college, and they were used even in my high school a little bit. But um, I failed to see anything um, significant about them. They were used generally in, um, in, to my mind, I was an athlete. They were used in reckless ways. I was, I was concerned and manipulated by propaganda. Maybe this was, maybe this saved me that um, LSD caused chromosome damage and that these were just too bizarre and too wild and too freaky for me. And so I, except for marijuana, I had nothing, no interest in them at all. It wasn't until I was at Columbia University and I began to, I, I had taken up very um, seriously the study and practice of Buddhism and uh, Theravadan Vipassana meditation and um, was so interested in that that I decided to really go deeply into that and where did these techniques come from? Where, who invented meditation? And so um, I learned there, we were talking a moment ago about Soma, that Indian Eastern religions from India come from the oldest body of writings, of course, the Rig Veda. And the Rig Veda is a, a series of hymns, poems actually, that were written um, thousands of years ago, mostly uh, the Rig Veda devoted to Soma. And Soma was a plant, and it was a god, and it was a drink. And scholars and historians have wondered for years what was Soma, and the first um, the first uh, uh, answer to that question that was convincing generally to the community of Indologists was the work of a of a banker, a very um, mysterious and interesting man who's tried to keep himself out of the limelight, uh, whose name was R. Gordon Wasson, and. Um, Wasson was a banker. He, he was not any banker. Um, he was the vice president of J.P. Morgan, and that's generally what people know about Gordon Wasson, that he was an amateur mycologist and, um, and a Wall Street banker. Um, but I, I got to know Gordon Wasson uh, toward the end of his life and spent some time with him and, and then was allowed into his archives and uh, began to investigate first his mycological researches, but I also looked into his personal life, and I found some very interesting things about this. Now, let me just back up a little bit. It, is, it has often been said about, about the introduction of psychedelics into our culture that uh, the timing is very auspicious, that LSD was discovered uh, sort of accidentally uh, just six months after the success of the success of the, the Manhattan Project, after they first um, discovered nuclear fission underneath the ground at the University of Chicago. Six months later, Albert Hoffman has this idea. He wakes up in the morning with an idea that he should re-examine a molecule that he had found five years earlier. He actually discovered LSD in 1938 and then um, put it aside, they couldn't find anything useful about it, and put it aside and then woke up that morning. This is right in the, right at the heart of one of the, the belly of the beast, one of the darkest periods until now in human history. 
April 1943, World War II is, is just raging. Fascism is swept over Europe. There's a battle. And, uh, and then out of this, and this combination of things, on one hand, science has reached out far enough and learned how to split the atom and tear nature completely asunder. And at the same time, virtually, a molecule is introduced that has the opposite effect of, of uh, allowing or occasioning a profound mystical experience. Uh, so Gordon Lawson was not just a banker, but Gordon Lawson was part of a very close circle of uh, people like Henry Luce and uh, Alan Dulles, John Foster Dulles. These are people, if, if you don't know, who are um, they were basically part of the Nazi party. They were part of the transformation, the rebirth of Nazism into the United States post-World War II. The, the terrible problems that we have in the United States and throughout the world with, with the propaganda of the media was, you know, Henry Luce who started Time Magazine and Life Magazine, this enormous media empire. These were, these were friends, close friends of Gordon Lawson's. Now, um, it's very interesting that Wasson, uh, as soon as he discovered, first white man really, to encounter this mushroom and to take it, he uh, very soon after that quit his banking job. This was, he was a guy that was making about a million dollars a year back in the 50s. This is a tremendous amount of money. And, and he, uh, he realized that he was now aware of something that was much more profound. And so he went into that. And that was my, that was the first real key to me that there was a, a much more profound significance to um, psychedelic drugs than I had first been led to believe through the recreational use and, and all this. So um, I, I was, uh, I moved to California and I began my, my student teacher relationship with a man who's not very well known in this movement. His name is Frank Barron. He was a psychologist and an expert in the psychology of creativity. And he, among other things, was Timothy Leary was his best friend in graduate school. And he, he told him about the mushroom and, and urged him to try it. <clears throat> now, there were, as I said, a great many social scientists who were um, the first wave of them actually uh, escaped Nazi Europe and came over, he came over to the United States and began to uh, try to articulate the psychological factors that allowed fascism to arise in, in, uh, in Germany. And uh, one of them was a, a man named Solomon Ash, who was struck by how easily people conform to a social reality even, even if or when that social reality is obviously uh, unethical or, or violent or wrong or just... So, so this is how Nazism was able to flourish. That uh, the, the soul of Germany had been kind of devastated by World War I and by the, by the accords of, at, uh, right after World War I. And they... Um, they, they just were, they didn't really know who they were. And so they were, they were susceptible to a powerful authoritarian figure that, upon which they projected their power. So 
you know, as I'm getting to understand this, I, this is when my fifth grade teachers remark, let's save democracy. And how does that work? And now if, if you look at the a political spectrum and you have democracy on one hand and you have fascism or authoritarianism or a totalitarian system on the other. And look at the difference in the, in the psychological makeup of the people. As I said, an authoritarian regime thrives on people not knowing who they are. They're not connected to their source. They've been, they've been alienated from divinity. Uh, the complete opposite in a democratic society, in democracy, of course, the idea of democracy comes from the ancient, comes from Greece, via the, initia the initiations, possibly at Eleusis, and other, and other of the Greek mystery cults. And these were experiences that people took part in, where they took an envision, and they had this experience. They had a, a profound death and rebirth experience. Their ego, their, the, 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 the parameters of our biological existence were temporarily removed, and the greater self is revealed. And so um, it's only when you have that experience, when you know, when you understand this, and this is one of my favorite uh, Sanskrit phrases, tatvamasi, thou art that. This mysterious thing, we've, we've heard um, several of our speakers talk about this, you know, how the part contains the whole. This, this mysterious equation of the microcosm and the macrocosm. Without that sort of connection, it's with that sort of connection that democracy really works. You know that, that what's good for you is really good for everybody else, and this kind of sense of the vast interconnectedness that we really, we really don't have in our, in our culture that's a little bit north of here. So, um, so I began to, I decided at that point that I was going to make this my career as a scholar or as a psychologist, that I would try to help revive this subject of psychedelic drugs and try to find a, a better context for it. For, for me, what worked, what validated the significance of psychedelics was this religious model. So that's when I decided to go to divinity school and to do, and to do research with psychedelic drugs and to try to show again that uh, these substances were not only not dangerous, but that they were, they were profoundly important and even more so now with this growing political crisis. And so um, another kind of mysterious thing happened to me when I was in graduate school. I had a, I had a very strong experience with uh, psilocybin mushrooms and I heard these voices that told me that I was going to be um, part of a movement to help resurrect a mystery school. I didn't even know what a mystery school was at that point. And I, and I wasn't sure what to make of these voices, but, they, but that happened. It was kind of brief, but it was very decisive. And it said things that, like, like people were going to come forward and be part of this, and that there were a number of us in this movement. This is, um, this is about 1982. You know, I, I was um, already a pretty smart guy, and I knew not to, I had a, what we call it in Chicago, a hermeneutics of suspicion. I didn't take things literally, you know, I was, I was already immediately inclined to kind of, you know, analyze this and was this some sort of, you know, uh, compensatory grandiosity or something to make myself feel important. But I, I took notes and, and um, then, mysteriously, uh, a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from somebody 
who said that um, he had heard through some people at Esalen, where I had lived, that um, I was in town and that I would be interested we should get together. So I, I met this man, and it turns out that he was a um, he was having a midlife crisis, he said. That's funny, he was, he was 45 years old, and I remember meeting him and thinking, oh, he's kind of an old guy. I was in my 20s, I guess. And um, his midlife crisis was the fact that he had, he had um, his father had died a few years earlier and, and left him the family business, which was one of the largest bourbon and whiskey distilleries in the United States. And he had inherited a, a um, fortune. He called it a moderate fortune, but it was a, it was a fortune. And um, he didn't know what to do with himself. And I, he, he was, I said, well, you know, what do you like to do? Well, he was a student at Harvard in the early 1960s. He was an undergraduate and went to law school also at Harvard. And he was, he bought a ticket to go to Zihuatanejo with Timothy Leary. Leary had a retreat in Mexico for a little while. And he bought the ticket to go there. He was very excited by what was going on, but but between the time that he bought the ticket and time to go, they closed down Zivuaneho. So he had this kind of unrequited desire to go to a place where people would take psychedelics and support themselves. So he said, that's what I would like to do. I'd like to create a psychedelic research center or something like a mystery school, he said. He said this to me while we were sailing on his little boat in, the, in Lake Michigan called, uh, he quote was named Hermes, who's of course the main, one of the main characters in the, in the Greek of Asinian Mysteries, who's the, the messenger who brings, brings the message from the gods to the mortals. Hermes was also the one who rescued Persephone in the, in the Asinian Mysteries, which, which is the uh, longest running religious ceremony, psychedelic or entheogenic um, practice right in, in all of history, excluding um, what is going on down here. Um, so I was amazed by this, and I said, well, you're the perfect guy to do this. you got more money than you know what to do with. You're a lawyer, and you've been to Harvard. You know how important this is. And he said um, he was afraid to do anything too controversial. When you have this much money, he said you're just afraid of losing it, or he was. So he said, you do it, and I'll just be, stay behind the scenes here, and, and I'll back you. And so this is what I, I called uh, Stan Groff, just to make sure I wasn't crazy, and I said, Stan, I had this experience on mushrooms a few weeks ago, and I'm in this guy, and now this is happening, and I'm, I'm really sure what to do. And he said, um, he said, let me call you back. He called me back a few minutes later, and he said, well, um, we have the Esalen Institute for two weeks at the end of December. Um, organize a conference, bring, bring together all of the significant people you can think of who had done legitimate work with psychedelic drugs, and we will make a go of this. Go ahead. So I, I dropped out of graduate school and I began to do this, and it's from, it's from that conference that this book that Alan so kindly mentioned, Entheogens in the Future of Religion, which uh, a little thing is not a book that I wrote, it's a book that I brought together, I wrote some of, I compiled it and edited it, and I'm very proud of it, it was a great, it was a great joy. So I, um, I did that. Um, again, I, I began to realize that um, 
many people were absolutely reluctant to enter into this subject of psychedelic drugs in, within the universities, and it was mainly because of Timothy Leary. And um, I, had, I had known Tim at that point, and I kind of agreed with a lot of the criticisms of him. He came across to me as a very um, selfish person and beautiful, wonderful, brilliant man, but there was something off about him, and it wasn't clear to me if he was, if he had ruined the possibility of entheogens having this soteriological or salvation for humanity by being self-oriented. It wasn't clear to me, but that's what I thought at that time. After uh, three or four, five, six years of banging my head against the wall and trying to get permission and organizing people, it occurred to me that the only way that entheogens were going to get this kind of widespread boost in our culture would be through the kind of charismatic, just vault over the resistance that, that Timothy Leary had affected for us. So that's, it was at that point that I turned my attention to Tim and became much closer friends and why I decided to do that, that second book about him. So, um, I've said that I think that the psychedelic movement has failed because fascism has now taken over America. Uh, that is something that is most dramatically apparent to me in what we saw on September 11th in, in uh, 2001 in the United States of America. Uh, I was like uh, many people immediately shocked and awed by these tremendous explosions in New York and was, was like a lot of people, um, convinced by this official story of 9-11. Even though it had um, seemed to me that buildings don't fall down like that because of fire. Buildings only fall down and explode when they have explosives put in them. But I didn't really have the courage within myself to acknowledge this. I thought about it. I thought, well, that would mean, and nobody else is saying this, so that, that can't really be true. And so I, I put it aside for a couple of years. I went along with the crowd. I was like, a subject, we all were like subjects in Solomon Ash's great experiment. Now, does any, do you know does Solomon Ash, does that ring a bell to anybody? Let me tell you a simple experiment that Solomon Ash did. <clears throat> this was in the 1940s. Solomon Ash brought together, here, here's, how I, here's how I explain this. Imagine somebody comes up to you and you're in college or somewhere, someone comes up to you and asks you if you want to take part in an experiment of your visual acuity. And you say yes, and it takes you into a room, and there's 20 other people sitting in the room. And you don't know this, but those 19 people, you're the 20th person, the 19 people have already been picked by the experiment, they're part of the experiment. You think they're just off the street like you. So Solomon Ash went to the board and he draws he draws four lines. One, this line over here is eight inches long. This line is ten inches long. This line is eight inches long. And this line is six inches long. He asks, which of these lines match? It's obvious which line matches. 
It's completely unambiguous. You're the 20th person. He goes around the room and he asks each of you, which, and everybody gives the wrong answer. And then it's your turn. What do you do when you're in that situation? When I ask people this, almost everybody says, I would give the right answer. But when Solomon Ash did this in the, 19, in the late 1940s, 85% of the population defies their own senses and conforms to the socially constructed but obviously false reality. This is, this spells danger. That's what happened in Germany. Stanley Milgram is another one of these great psychologists that showed this, that people will just obey a man in a laboratory coat. The, lab, the, lab, the authorities of our society have the power instead of us. This is, this, is, this is the problem that we face right now. And I wonder, um, like my teachers, Frank and Tim, wondered in the 1950s. They knew this in the 1950s. They said, this is, this is, we're gonna, the same thing is going to happen to us. We have to find a way to enliven the inner core of the human being. And so when Frank Barron took those mushrooms in Mexico and had this profound mystical experience, he knew that he had found the Holy Grail, or he thought that he had found the Holy Grail of psychology, and that this would be the thing, if they could get it into the society, this would be the thing that would enliven a person's own natural and innate intelligence and not render them so susceptible to the kind of manipulation that we, that we have been subjected to. So he told, he told Tim about this, and, and Tim's first comment was, you know, I'm not going to fuck around with any mushrooms, Frank, forget it. And then finally he prevailed, and Tim took them and agreed that this was going to be the thing that was going to save America from this kind of fascist threat. It didn't work. And now we have a crisis that makes the 1950s seem like a minor problem. And one of the reasons that I came down here to Peru to uh, re-explore ayahuasca, I was down here uh, five or six years ago and um, drank heavily and, and explored these mysteries in the context of healing cancer, which is another very dramatic and important role of ayahuasca. Uh, I've decided to come back here now to explore uh, these mysteries, to go into these mysteries with this question, because um, because this is um, this is something that has to be answered. What do we do about the fact that the United States is basically, as my friend Marty Lee wrote, the beast has reawakened. The, the, the climate in the United States now is like the climate in Germany in 1934-35. And I don't mean to frighten any one of you. I'm, I would imagine that um, virtually everyone here is aware of this. I'm curious if I may ask, is there anyone here who is not aware that 9-11 was an inside job, that, it's, that, it, that it's, it's, it's really very obvious. It goes from invisible to obvious with just a little bit of study. If you're not seeing that, I will tell you that you haven't looked at it carefully enough. 
that you that your that your perception of this very obvious event, like these subjects in Solomon Ash's experiment, is skewed. Your perception is skewed by your fear or by your unwillingness to face something that is so grave that um, that it's uh, that it just kind of boggles your mind, quite literally. And people get confused and try to. Often people will try to justify their their um, irrationality in their in irrational ways, and um, and so my question that I'm exploring and that I would like to explore together here is if we think that our personal spiritual therapeutic pursuits with sacred plants and drugs, how does this figure? in our addressing this planetary crisis. What has happened for me is I've become, um, I've become more of a Buddhist again. You know, the, the, the religious traditions of India are based on a worldview that the sentient world is dukkha, samsara. Dukkha means fundamentally unsatisfactory. Samsara means around and around, death and rebirth. Around the, it's it's a it's a kind of false, um, insignificant, temporary, unreal world. And the goal of life, the goal of these practices in yoga and in and in Buddhism, is not to make the world a better place. It's to gracefully depart. It's all about detaching yourself. From this, from this plane of existence. That's, that's one uh, set of ideas and methodologies for salvation. The other one, which I have a foot in that world too, being a father of a much beloved young man now, who I named after Mircea Eliade, I, I have a, a kind of warrior spirit about me. And I feel like we need to somehow um, mobilize here. But how, how do you do this? You know, how do you confront this kind of thing in, in the sense of political action once you realize that how extensive this thing is? Not only were the buildings brought down by, obviously, from the inside, but you have a, you have a phenomenal um, uh, uh, collusion with the media. You know, I'm sure there are people within the media who are quite deliberately conspiring to keep this from view, but then there are also these unconscious levels of conspiracy. My mother doesn't, wasn't part of the plot, but she thinks I'm crazy for thinking this. So how do we, how do we penetrate this kind of thing? Well, again, I, I still think that entheogens are going to have a role in this, and one of the reasons why is that I think that, well, I think that I think that Plato kind of anticipated this crisis that we have here, because he, one of the one of Plato's most important contributions, his story, the allegory of the cave, is about something almost exactly like this. Now, Plato, Plato was an initiate of the of the Eleusinian mysteries. Are, are, are we familiar with the Eleusinian mysteries? Who, who who doesn't know about the Eleusinian mysteries? Okay, great. So we know that, that at Eleusis, people would travel to this site outside of Athens once a year. They would go just once in their life and have this profound experience, and they would know that death was not the end of anything. It was actually the beginning of a much greater adventure. But you couldn't talk about this. 
because if you try to talk about it with someone who didn't know, they wouldn't understand what you were saying, and they would be hostile. So Plato's allegory of the cave is about exactly this scenario, right? You have a room full of people who are chained to their seats, and the only thing that they see their whole lives are the shadows on the wall in front of them. Behind them there burns a terrific fire, casting shadows in front of them. One person manages to get loose from the chains and turns around, he sees the fire, gets out of the cave, sees the real world, comes back into the cave to tell his brothers and sisters, and they're so unhappy with the news that they kill him. And so this is, you know, Plato, Plato um, depicted this as really the, the plight of the philosopher. And I, and I suggest here that this is, this is the plight that, that we now face, that awakened human beings, and I don't mean that in any you know, heavy spiritual sense because we're, not, we're, we're awakening. We are, we are all in this room awakening, that's for sure. This is, this is the challenge that people who are in the process of awakening uh, the challenge that they face when they when they try to discuss their visions with people who haven't had them. The idea that the United States has been has been um, conquered, that the Third Reich has been born again, is um, is just too big an issue. So, how do we how do we get out of this crisis? What do we do? How how can the entheogens help us? So I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm willing to make this now a group discussion, and um, they don't have to be questions. They can be, they can be comments, and they don't have to be about this. We can talk about um, any number of things about the modern history of psychedelic drugs. I have friends that also um, think along the same lines as I do. They would be here also if they had to be. I have a, a, a lot of friends that think along the same lines as I do and that would probably be here if they had the opportunity. But um, I think also that they fear a lot of fear, as you said, in coming out and talking about stuff like this. I know a lot of people do believe that the same along the same lines that 9-11 was an inside job and other things like that, but are almost too afraid even to talk to siblings or parents about it. I think one of the things is just being able to get over that fear and being able to express that point of view so other people can know where you stand. Yeah, there's no question about that. That one of the one of the biggest obstacles that we face is going to be coming to terms with our fear. How do we do that? How do we do that? How did you do that? Um, it was a lot of trouble most of it. I mean, it just had to do with talking about it and getting over the fact that people are going to either ridicule you or try to sideline you. But I think you have just have to have a perseverance and a belief that, you know, what you're saying is important and it needs to be heard. That's great. Thank you. What's next? I actually wanted to say something that reminded me of what you guys were saying. Uh, George Maxwell actually one of his lectures said something kind of similar to this kind of a fear, which is like, when you shine a light that no one's ever seen before, and it's really bright, your first reaction is to close your eyes. That's kind of what people do. So, 
late, like having the courage to open your eyes up. Yeah. And, and the ad yeah. How do you? How or why would you open your eyes to something that is so ugly? That's another. It's a very thorny problem, isn't it? Yeah. Hi. Um, you know, this whole thing of the connection between the Third Reich and Germany in the 30s and current situation, it, it seems to imply that uh, Hitler wasn't an isolated individual, but you know, he was sort of the spokesman for some you know, thing, right? Um, so I'm wondering, in that regard, uh, you know, how you see where the United States is at right now. You know, we have this. Uh, I, I don't know quite what to make of Obama. I'm Canadian, but I do follow this stuff closely. And uh, you know, Obama seems like potential, uh, uh, you know, some change involved there. But uh, just wondering what your take on that current situation going on up there right now is politically. You know, is this uh, is the third right coming on even stronger? Is, is, is this sort of a ruse or a distraction, or is he actually, in some even small way, representing rebellion of the people? Well, that's it. That is the question right now among many of my friends and colleagues that are looking at this. You know, if you've ever read um, Herbert Marcuse's very important book, One Dimensional Man, which is about how totalitarian societies function, one of the things that they do is that they have these, Marcuse used the phrase, uh, tension management. <clears throat> one way you manage the tension in a in a authoritarian culture, the tension between the uh, the authoritarian regime and the people who are virtually enslaved is you have to give the appearance that something that there is change. There actually is a two-party system, and so um, you know Obama, um, who I I have not met and honestly haven't been paying very close attention to, but I'm aware much more aware of say the Clinton administration. Right. So here we had a, we had a very similar we had a very similar period. Right. We had George Bush the first in there, and in that in that administration, you know his his uh, his foreign policy team and Reagan's foreign policy team. We had the Iran Contra scandal, where we had these people you know working out of the White House engaged in multi billion dollar weapon sales to terrorist nations, the Ayatollah Khomeini and Saddam Hussein. Billions of dollars of, of drugs, of sales of, of heroin and cocaine, and these guys were flushed out, and they were eventually indi indicted by Congress. These are very serious crimes. Indicted by Congress for subverting democracy, doing practicing American foreign policy on their own, and um, and then in the last week of George Bush's administration, they were all pardoned by George Bush. And then a couple years, a couple of weeks later, we have, we have the Bill Clinton administration, and it is about you know we've got this now we've got a saxophone playing quasi pot smoking baby boomer in there, and the progressive movement kind of took a little nap. We figured we've got it, and people don't really realize, but you know one of the one of the things like the drug war you know was raging during the Clinton administration. And for all we think about, you know, Al Gore being the great environmental president, the environmental movement lost ground during the during the Clinton-Gore administration. Over a million people have been put in jail for marijuana. You see that the authorities knew what Leary was up to. Let me let me go back and say something about Tim that I forgot to say before. Tim Tim was a was a rising star in American psychology in Berkeley in the 1950s. 
And he was, the, the CIA attempted to recruit him. They came to Tim who had already established himself as, as um, a, a brilliant um, diagnostician who could predict and change human behavior. He was, he, he revolutionized, he, he was beginning to revolutionize psychotherapy. Um, and the way he did it was by taking the authority out of it. Tim was one of the pioneers in group therapy. He did research that showed that, you know, psychotherapy where a person is a patient and, and then there's a doctor and the doctor kind of talks down to the patient, that doesn't work any better or worse than just the ordinary passage of time. And what was a far more effective therapeutic modality was an interaction with peers. See, he was already starting to democratize society. And um, the CIA came to him and attempted to recruit him in, a, in, a, in an enormous program. One of the first things that the CIA did when they were started in 1947 was an operation called Operation Mockingbird. Mockingbird, what do mockingbirds do? They just repeat what you tell them. Okay, so Operation Mockingbird was the beginning of the rebirth of the Third Reich. They, they, this is how they did it in Germany. They take over the media. They take over publishing. They infiltrate universities. So they wanted Tim to work with them to anticipate where dissident groups were going to arise and totally let him in on this mind control project. Basically, Operation Mockingbird was a, was a vast mind control operation over the United States. They were going to take over America, mind first. MKUltra, which I'm sure, you know, if you've looked in the field of, of psychedelia, was their, was their more specific project using psychedelic drugs to see how they could manipulate consciousness. But, uh, so they tried to recruit Tim. And he said, no way, man. He's, didn't we just fight a war against that? He said, that's not what I'm doing. And it really motivated him. He saw the threat that was happening. And so, um, so and to get back to your question, I don't really know about Obama. I'm certainly going to vote for him. I'm going to support his candidacy profoundly. His, one of his foreign policy advisors is uh, Brzezinski who is one of these fascists from the Bush administration and, and you know, with this whole new world order. It's not, um, he has a very, very difficult job ahead of him. Um, I, was, I was hoping, I'm, I'm sort of wildly optimistic that somehow Dennis Kucinich's campaign would catch on because he's, he, I know for a fact, is tuned into this. Tuned in, yeah. So when Tim came up with his meme, oh, this is what I was gonna say. Marijuana. Tim um, knew what they were up to, and he knew how to stop it. And he knew the way was to try to get, in a widespread way, this these memes into our culture. Question authority. Think for yourself. You know, he, he encouraged you know people to drop, tune up, tune, turn on, tune in, drop out. That was very specifically directed to this socially constructed reality that was being manufactured by Operation Mockingbird. So he and he identified the psychedelic drugs and marijuana, especially at first, with this um, discovery of the of the inner world of the individual, this this impoverished inner world, this 1950s one-dimensional man. Tim wanted to turn that on, and so. This is why psychedelic wealth marijuana 
and psychedelic drugs are so illegal because Tim had Tim had made this connection, and and um, you know if you if you look at the if you look at the um, transcripts, the, the tapes of uh, Nixon when they when they were first making marijuana illegal, you know Nixon appointed these commissions. The first one to come up with a reason why they needed. Well, first Leary, Leary was busted for pot, and then he showed the Supreme Court that the laws against marijuana were unconstitutional. He won his first case at the Supreme Court, and then as soon as he did that, he announced his uh, his candidacy for governor of California, and it looked like it was going to be a big party, and then he was set up and busted again, and they and they redid the laws. And uh, Nixon, needing a better reason, appointed a commission that investigated marijuana. And they came to Nixon and they said, sorry, Mr. President, um, it's perfectly safe. And, and there's really no reason to make it illegal. So Nixon went off on one of his drunken rages. And, and I've, I've uh, heard these tapes and seen the transcripts. They're, um, that why are psychiatrists, you know, he was ranting and raving about psychiatrists are just a bunch of Jewish fags trying to bring down civilization and stuff like that, and demanded another commission, which also came up with the same data and said, we can't do this. And Nixon said, the hell with all of you, and they put in this Controlled Substance Act, which, which criminalized marijuana and all of the psychedelic drugs. It's got to be the most inane piece of legislation in the history of the United States government. And it's put more people in jail and prevented us from freely exploring the origin of religion and the nature of our soul. Uh, Obama, I don't know. Sorry, I don't know. Um, okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, as far as, in my opinion... Yeah. One way we can uh, kind of challenge a dominated society is to take something we've learned from post-colonial studies and stop encouraging this master-slave dialectic and be, be naked psychonauts, be open about our spirituality and be unashamed because uh, I, don't, I don't live in America so I suppose it's a bit different but with me I, I'm completely open with basically anyone I talk to about my spirituality and in doing so, I think it's a way to show, it's a way to stop that process and, and stop it right there and say, I don't agree with this, the dominator society, and be completely, be naked in front of the universe, be naked with everybody else in that society, as we do, because if we were closeted about it, and I know it is different in America, it's a different environment, but if we're closeted, we're effectively agreeing with that, like, agreeing that we're uh, practicing a valid spiritual a Gandhian, yay, that's that's right. We we need to collapse the dialectic, you're absolutely right. And the way that one way to do that is just to thank you. When when you talked about nine eleven and you said who doesn't know that it was I think you used the word no, doesn't know that it was an inside job. Am I quoting you correctly? Chris? Okay. Um, I guess I don't know it. Um, I'm willing to be convinced of it, but I would like to know who would do that, and why would they do that? Okay. <clears throat> there's three. There's three basic. There are a lot of smoking guns around this, but the three that I like to point out are <clears throat> number one: the United States has a, you know, 
trillion-dollar defense system. It's the most sophisticated uh, air defense system in the world. The Pentagon is the most heavily guarded building in the world. As a matter of normal practice, it happened 60 or 70 times already that year in 2001. Whenever an airplane goes off course and doesn't respond to air traffic control, within minutes, 10 minutes, anywhere in the United States, the Air Force is scrambled, the jet, meaning jets are taken off. Okay, I was going to get to that, but the first thing, this, this, is, this is one way to let you see that, number one, somebody turned off the alarm, okay? Number two, the way I like to put this is, you're either with the law of gravity or you're with the terrorists. Buildings don't fall down, turn into a pile of dust in 10 seconds because of fire. There have been many, many fires in buildings, you know, in skyscrapers that have burned for, there was one Madrid fire in a hotel that burned for 17 hours. Fire does not melt steel. Fire does not bring down steel frame buildings. It does not happen. You might as well say that those buildings turned into butterflies and flew up into the sky for all of the adherence to the laws of nature. Okay, and number three is, just watch building number seven fall down. Okay. Okay, um, the who and why is, um, they, the, the, now let me just say, there's two ways to go about this. Um, there's a document that was written in 1991 called, um, Rebuilding America's Defenses uh, by, by a group called the Project for the New American Century, which is a group of ultra-right-wing hawks that were in the Bush administration. These individuals are, several of them are dual citizens of the United States and Israel. There, this document, the Rebuilding America's Defenses, is, is a, what to do now that the Cold War is over. What are we, how are we gonna justify this terrific military budget if we don't have any more enemies? And so they say in this document, well, what we're going to need to do here is we're going to have to militarily dominate the Middle East for strategic purposes and for the oil. This is, this is a plan that was, the document written, it was a secret document, it was leaked to the press, there was, a, there was a reaction against it because it was so outrageous. There's a statement in there, a sentence in there that says the only way to get the American people behind such a plan, they didn't call it a diabolical plan, they said the only way to get American people behind this plan is if there was another, a major galvanizing event like a new Pearl Harbor. Remember, in World War II, the United States was very ambivalent about entering or entering the war until Pearl Harbor, and then the United States rushed into the war. So these people that wrote this document, um, when this monkey came into the White House, and I'm sorry if I've offended any of my monkey friends, when this administration took over, the people that wrote this document were his foreign policy team. They controlled the investigation, and that's who we think did it. We won't know until we really 
get into this with... I'm sorry? Yes, I did say that. Yes. The, 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 I believe that we should have an investigation to fully explore the role of certain individuals such as Doug Zakin, who is the comptroller of the Pentagon and a signature to the project of the New American Century. Doug Zakin was the comptroller of the Pentagon, who was in charge of the Pentagon's budget in, um, on September 10th, 2000, one day before 9-11, Donald Rumsfeld made a startling announcement that there were $2.3 trillion missing 2.3 trillion dollars. That's a lot of ayahuasca. <laughs> Missing from the Pentagon. It was. It should have been the biggest news in the history of the United States, and it would have been, except on September 11th, even bigger news came down. Okay. So if you want to, if you want to research this a little bit, you check out the Project for the New American Century, and in particular, this is most carefully described by one of the world's foremost philosophers and Christian theologians, a colleague and friend of mine, Professor David Ray Griffin, has now written in the last, and his retirement has come out with six books since 2003 about this. And the first one you want to read is called A New Pearl Harbor, Disturbing Questions About the Bush Administration's Complicity in 9-11. And that will get you going on that. Please. The century is the Patriot Act, is it? No. The, the Project for the New American Century is actually a think tank, a, 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 a consortium of these individuals of, um, you know, I could, I could name a number of them, Jeb Bush, Dick Cheney, Scooter Libby. The Patriot Act was the 700-page document that just happened to be available for signing uh, a couple of weeks after 9-11, which is basically undermines the U.S. Constitution. That's what that is. Um, I just wanted to mention, though, that the uh, first reference that I ever heard of the idea of a new Pearl Harbor is actually in a Spignu Brzezinski book, the advisor to Obama, uh, one of Obama's advisors, uh, the Grand Chessboard, where he first posits that idea that that's exactly what you would need to mobilize the Americans to allow them to go into the Middle East. There's, there's very good reason to be suspicious of Obama, but um, he's all we got right now. So, please. Um, I just wanted to return to like how do we, or you were talking about like the psychedelic movement kind of failed in liberating the minds of the masses, and uh, maps published that only about 10% of the American culture has ever even considered trying psychedelic mushrooms, which is the most popular psychedelic in the United States. Um, do you think of uh, you know, that increased, or if that number increased, would that, like, create a greater movement? And, um, how, like, are there ways that you thought of that they could, like, people could be more convinced that these are more medicinal than, um, you know, just drugs that are recreationally used? Okay, I see your question in kind of two parts, because the first part of it, if more people took mushrooms, would this work? Right. Okay, so, um, I hope so. And, and here, and here's a way where that might happen. You know, I'm, I'm sure you've all looked at, you know, some of the, the new understandings in quantum physics, and that what happens to an individual actually affects all of humanity, right? So, 
Uh, and there, there are these stories, perhaps they're apocryphal stories, of uh, yogis in the mountains in the Himalayas that are sitting and meditating and are in pure samadhi. And it's that, and it's that unitive experience that they that they live in that's that's sort of keeping it in balance anyway. But that 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 kind of enlightenment affects the whole. So if everybody were to take mushrooms, or more and more people were to take mushrooms, yes, I think that would have that has a kind of reverberating kind of effect. Yes. The second part, say the question again. Um, part of what I do with my open about spirituality is refer to them as medicines, not like mushrooms, but um, you know, mushroom medicine or ayahuasca medicine. And um, what are some of the ways you think that we could, you know, reestablish a culture of medicinal use as opposed to recreational use of these substances? Yes. Well, you know, there's a there's a saying of um, Confucius, I think, that you know, when things go wrong, the first step to correcting them is to begin to call things by their true names, right? And so um, this is one of the things that, in fact, it was Wasson and his colleagues that, that came up with this, that let's change the name of psychedelic. And this is where the word now entheogen comes from. So if we, if we call these things something else, and then begin to explain what the, what's an entheogen. Well, an entheogen is a, a plant or chemical substance that's been used since the beginning of time to affect religious experiences. That's different than psychedelic, which, or, and you're suggesting medicine, and I agree. Yes, we need, to, we need to reframe, we need to reframe this. And that would be one very important basic way to do it. Yes. First of all, I just, I really admire what you say, and I, and I, um, I resonate with a lot of it. Um, it's more of a comment than it is a question, but we do have movements right now, like MAPS, for example, you know, who's seriously involved with psychedelic studies in the United States, and the psilocybin study that was done at UCLA, um, that's been publicized on television recently in the United States. And that was Johns Hopkins' study. Okay, John Hopkins, sorry. Um, but, you know, this does bring awareness to people, you know, in the mainstream, because obviously the media is a tool that's used to manipulate people. And, and when people can see this, you know, it brings some light to the subject. And there's a possibility that, that more of the mainstream, more of the mainstream mentality will be turned on, you know, through this, uh, through these studies. Um, the, the, I, I was at Mind States a few years ago, and there was a man speaking, um, I'm forgetting who it was now, and he was speaking about there being two types of humans um, on the planet right now, one being Homo sapien and the other one being Homo divinis, whereas the, the, the Homo sapiens are more like the monkeys, and, and the Homo divinis are the people that are more conscious or have more awareness. And, um, you know, it's really these people that have this conscious or that or we're conscious, you know, of or aware of the of by, by our eyes being open enough, or we've had experiences, whatever it might be, that bring us to this awareness. Who are the warriors, you know, or the the you know the people, the, the peaceful warriors that need to somehow through our own. Um, um, organization of our imagination you know, um, formulate a methodology to combat 
you know, the, these homo sapiens, you know, that are out there. And um, I believe that a lot of people here having the experiences that they've had, you know, are these warriors, you know, and if we can organize ourselves somehow, a little bit more organization in, you know, through our imagination, you know, maybe we can, we can be the tools, you know, that, or the catalyst to cause this change to happen. You know, um, it's just a thought, you know, um, I, I would like to think or, or have optimistic, you know, of an optimistic view of the future, but it's hard living in the United States, you know, with the, the, the general factuous mentality that exists. And, um, and so I don't really know an answer, you know, and I would like to think entheogenics definitely have a role, you know, or, you know, in this. Um, obviously they do because they change our consciousness and bring us to a, a more conscious awareness. Um, but, you know, how we can spread that word, you know, Timothy Leary was a little, like you said, he was a little bit too flamboyant maybe in his, you know, in his approach, you know, but but there's there might be more subtle methods and and the group ceremonies that people are doing what um just by, by what, what um Dennis McKenna said the other night about us all just the plants getting out there and, and, and all of us being missionaries in a sense, you know, for these these medicines, you know, spread the word, you know, and turn people on and, and don't be afraid. You know, fear is definitely, uh, you know, um, will hold us back, you know, so don't be afraid to turn people on and, and, and um, I don't know, that's all. Thank you. Thank you. I want to talk with you a little bit later. I am um, the conference that I mentioned at the beginning that I organized with Stan Groff was actually the um, the that conference gave rise to not only my first book, Entheogens in the Future of Religion, but it gave rise to several uh, associations. You know, during the 70s, nothing was really going on with psychedelic drugs. And this, this I, I started this in the early 1980s in this quiet period. And um, that conference gave rise to MAPS. It also gave rise to Terence McKenna's Botanical Dimensions. It gave rise to the Albert Hoffman Foundation and, um, and the, the people that eventually kind of started the Hefter Institute were also all there. So it was a, it was a very fertile, fertile conference. Now Rick Doblin is an old friend of mine. He was, he was actually turned on to MDMA. As a, he was a subject in mine and my partner's um, kind of quasi-formal research with MDMA at the time that it was, it was a secret substance. It was not illegal, it was not widely known. We started working with it in 1981. Rick got turned on to it. Everybody was supposed to be quiet about it. It wasn't really that quiet about it. And, and actually there were articles about him as the Timothy Leary of the 80s. He was kind of, I'm the new Timothy Leary of the 80s and this is going to be the new drug, here's this new legal drug, and called a lot of attention to it, and caused a lot of problems. Now Rick has been, you know, incredibly tenacious and, and has done some really fabulous work in, um, in with this maps thing. I have a I have a problem with it because to me it, it is it's legitimizing the authoritarian situation. We, we shouldn't be, in a, in a country like the United States, we shouldn't be begging authorities to explore our own consciousness with the oldest form of religion on the planet. That's like fundamentally wrong. And, uh, and Rick, um, 
that there's, um, I just have a, a little problem with that, and I'm going to maybe talk with you about later, but anybody that is, is a supporter and, and corresponds and is part of the MAPS thing, I would like to see a discussion about some of these issues that I've raised here. It would be interesting to talk with Rick about what he thinks about 9-11 and remember some of the things that I said. Uh, I have a comment slash question. Um, the comment is like it seems like the 60s movement was really brought down by COINTELPRO. Is not like the only thing, but one of the major things. I'm not sure if you're aware, you probably are, but I mean not everybody. Um, and also like the, the problem with people organizing and then getting infiltrated and then the people looking up to these idols like M, uh, Martin Luther King or John F. Kennedy and then when the, their idols were brought down, then they thought the whole system that they were trying to build was brought down. So I just wanted to point out that people need to be very careful when they do organize um, and start doing these things because there will be other people that come in and uh, disrupt you from the inside out. And then my question is, what do you think uh, like efficient methods other than like openly organizing or like deciding when you want to turn open? Um, you know, as far as like gathering your strength and being quiet about it and then turning over uh, to show everybody else about it. I'll just say this, that um, ask me that question at the end of a few more drinks. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So, are we all sufficiently paranoid now? <laughs> I hope not, because uh, that is not a very helpful emotion. And it certainly isn't why I'm putting this information out right now. You see, I, I know one thing for almost certain, and that is that at some point in time, most of us are going to be seriously disappointed in young Mr. Obama. As you know, uh, that is already the case with me. Yet, uh, I'm still a little schizo about it because uh, I also see him as far and away the best person the U.S. political system has uh, ever produced, uh, at least in my lifetime, and I started with Roosevelt. Uh, which is the point. It is the system itself that is fatally flawed, and we shouldn't expect perfect leaders to arise from a very imperfect system. As I said earlier, I'm not talking about politics here because I've come to the conclusion that politics will never change anything. As my mother often said, everything's changed, but nothing's different. I spent a, a good deal of my life involved in political fights, uh, primarily on the POW issue. And I came to see how fruitless it is uh, to try to push against these big institutions. As I see it, uh, today's talk is about history and culture, and ultimately, it's our culture that matters most. To tell the truth, I've completely given up on politics. My mission is to effect a change in our underlying culture in order to help nudge us into a more sustainable and human-oriented direction. But if we don't know the history of how our culture has evolved, uh, we're doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. 
It seems to me that it's about time we made some new mistakes while attempting to bring an end to one of our biggest mistakes of recent history, uh, namely the war on drugs. Now, I realize that uh, some of the things Robert talks about are, are going to be a major challenge for uh, a few of our fellow saloners. And I don't want you to worry that I'm going to go off on a tangent of conspiracy theories and keep bringing this up in future podcasts. But what I want to suggest is that you listen to this talk again and that you do your best to listen to it with a completely open mind. Try to shed the mental conditioning of several years of mainstream media only supporting the Bush-Cheney version of things. And please don't think that I want you to spend your valuable time in researching this never-ending story and getting trapped in the never-ending trail of conspiracy theories. All I'm saying here is that Robert and I find it quite unusual that whenever the official story is contradicted, the one community that goes most overboard in attacking the doubters of the Bush tale is the psychedelic community. In fact, there's a, a really fascinating blog comment thread that you might be interested in. It began with a post on mysterytheater.blogspot.com that was titled Psychedelics, Science, and the WTF. In, uh, and in it, the author questioned why Robert Forte brought up the question of 9-11 at the Horizons Conference. And so Robert uh, began what is becoming a very fascinating discussion uh, in the comments section. And it's all very civil, I might add, which is a nice uh, change of pace for the net. But if you're wondering, uh, like I have, uh, why the psychedelic community in general refuses to uh, even think about the uh, truth or non-truth of the official story, uh, this is a thread I think you'll find quite fascinating. Isn't it amazing that uh, after all of the wild exploits we've had romping about uh, in, in theospace, it just blows my mind that the minds of the psychedelic community haven't uh, been able to expand enough to even remain open to uh, consider other possibilities about the events that have now led us to where we are living in an early stage police state. An investigative reporter that I admire is Benjamin Fulford, and uh, here is something that he has to say about why most people will never be clear-headed enough to look behind the curtain and uh, see who is really pulling the strings. Uh, Fulford says, and I quote, Because to accept that it was a cabal in the U.S. government that did this, it means to accept that the entire belief system you have about your society is wrong. Now, uh, do you really think the U.S. government would lie to you? Take a look at the war on drugs and then answer that question. So, are you ready for uh, accepting that uh, your entire belief system about your society is wrong? Can you accept the fact that perhaps everything you believe about freedom, democracy, and the American dream has actually been a crock of lies? It isn't an easy thing to consider. Uh, that I know for sure. And the bottom line here is that it really doesn't matter who was behind those events. Nor do the specific details of how the events unfolded matter at this point. All that really matters right now is that we the people have lost a significant number of our basic rights as a result of it. And we will very likely see this erosion of civil liberties uh, continue under an Obama administration, particularly when it comes to the war on drugs. There is simply too much momentum carrying it forward right now. So what do we do? Well, I, I wish I knew. <laughs> but for now, I think Terrence McKenna's advice is uh, about the best we have to go on. And that is, keep the old faith and stay high.
Now let's uh, move on to some more positive things. First of all, uh, as long as we're talking about uh, high weirdness, uh, I want to recommend a follow-up to my podcast number 150, the one where Terrence McKenna spoke about UFOs. That talk uh, has generated a fair amount of discussion on several boards, and uh, KMO followed up with uh, two podcasts of commentary about it with Neil Kramer, who is uh, also one of our fellow saloners, by the way. And subsequent to uh, these three podcasts, uh, Cody of the Sancho and Cody Duo, who produced the most excellent Black Light in the Attic podcasts, did what he calls a smash-up of these three podcasts and posted it as Blacklight number 9.5. Now, if this is a topic that interests you, uh, my recommendation is to download that 9.5 show and give it a listen. First of all, uh, Cody has done a beautiful job of overlaying music and uh, pacing the ideas with brief musical interludes, which gives you time to digest an idea before moving on to the next one. Both my wife and I have uh, listened to Black Light's 9.5 program twice now, and each time we came away with things we hadn't heard in the original programs. Uh, so uh, check them out if you get a chance. Uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed. Now here is uh, something that one of our fellow saloners might be able to help out with. A university researcher is uh, working on a book about the psychedelic experience, and he has asked if anyone knows whether there are any written transcripts of Terence McKenna's descriptions of the DMT experience. Something along the lines of what he said in my podcast number 27. I'm not aware of any such transcripts myself, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me if some of our slaughters hadn't uh, taken the time to create one or two of uh, transcripts of the Good Bards Talks. So uh, let me know at Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com if you uh, have a lead on something like that. In fact, uh, I'd like to post any transcripts you know of on our website also. Another uh, little item is a thank you to the people who occasionally buy a few books through our Amazon store at my news site, MatrixMasters.com. And every once in a while, uh, someone also purchases a video game there. And, uh, hey, the 4% commission we get on those sales may not sound like much, but uh, every little bit helps. And uh, that's how I uh, actually support that site. So uh, thanks a lot to you anonymous friends of ours. And finally, uh, Chris writes to say, I'm pretty sure I've listened to every McKenna lecture ever made, at least every one that was ever available for download on the net. If you can believe it, I have pretty much listened to McKenna lectures for eight hours a day, five days a week for a couple of years now. I am a courier and drive around all day. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if... I don't know of anyone who's listened to that much McKenna, so <laughs> I'd sure like to meet you someday. Anyhow, he goes on. Talk about Terrence Overload, huh? Are there any lost McKenna lectures that have not been put on the web that you are aware of? In the Valley of Novelty was a great one that I have only been able to find on the salon. Well, Chris, uh, my guess is that there's uh, still a lot of uh, Terrence material that hasn't made it to the net yet. Uh, after all, you know, he was sort of like the Grateful Dead in that he let anyone record his talks that wanted to. So if any of our fellow saloners uh, know of some lost material or maybe have a few old cassette tapes in your garage that you've forgotten about, it sure would be great if we could uh, get them up here on the net for the world to hear. Our dear Terrence had his faults, and uh, no one I know of agrees with him on everything. But on the whole, uh, I think his work stands far and above that of uh, most every other 20th century philosopher. 
Well, that's about the extent of my energy level for today. And uh, next week, uh, by the way, uh, and hopefully it'll only be one week, I uh, plan on podcasting a talk titled Reality Syndromes and Cyberpunk Symptoms. And uh, I think you're going to find that one quite interesting. And now, as always, I'll uh, close this podcast by saying that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are available for your use under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And that's uh, also where I'm going to post the uh, program notes for this podcast. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Be well.